3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. I'm just figuring out which uh, which mics to turn on. Good morning, Inez. Good morning, Leela. Good morning, Priya. Good morning. Ah, we sound so chipper today. It's uh, it's, it's all popping off at <laughs> Thursday breakfast. We're, we're all having a great time. Absolutely. Absolutely. A great time. The best time of my whole life. I've never had a better time. It's Amazing. <laughs> you know... It is 7 a.m. and here we are. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we saw a cool dog this morning, uh, a chow chow. We did. A black chow chow. So um, keep an eye out. There's one in Fitzroy. Yeah. Uh, you got two eyes. Keep one of them out. Exactly. Keep one of them out because uh, there's a dog that Beanie. we saw and you may also see. He's doing the rounds. He is doing the so rounds. Maybe they. Uh, maybe. Maybe they. Who knows? We don't know this dog's pronouns. We shouldn't have assumed. Um, but we do know that we have a big show for you again today. So um, maybe we will jump into the rundown. Uh, Inez, do you want to kick it off? Yeah, so we'll be doing a replay um, of Doing Time. And it so it is about, sorry, has anything changed with the election of the Albanese government in terms of refugee rights? So Marissa has caught up with the Refugee Action Collective member David Glantz on the week's During Time show. You can hear the conversation in full at www.3cr.org um, slash doing time. Yes, perfect. And after that, we're going to hear from Maddie Ha, who's an activist with Students for Palestine at RMIT University. And she's joining us today to remind listeners about the plan to speak out today demanding that RMIT cut ties with Israeli weapons manufacturer Elbit Systems. So we were joined earlier this week, I believe Genevieve spoke to Ella on Tuesday breakfast about this this speak out. And so we wanted to unpack some more of the issues today around Elbit Systems and uh, international solidarity and pushback against uh, these weapons manufacturing companies that are terrorizing people in occupied Palestine. And um, of course, people have seen across the news this week that this has only escalated. Uh, civilians, children are are being killed indiscriminately. And it is something that we absolutely must speak out against. So uh, really important interview. And after that, we're joined by Madeline Thornton-Smith. Madeline has a strong interest in labour issues, particularly in relation to the visual arts and ceramics industry. She has become passionate about the working rights of artists and art workers since doing an internship with the Victorian Trades Hall Council and the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, participating in discussions with the Melbourne-based Artists' Union Research Group. And after experiencing years of insecure and unsafe working conditions as a practicing artist, technician and tutor alongside her art worker comrades. Today, Madeline joins us to discuss her work on art and labor, the renewed national cultural policy and unionizing in the creative sector. 
And finally, we're going to be joined by Chris Sharinga, who's a campaigner with the Victorian Forest Alliance. And Chris joins us to discuss concerns about the recently passed Victorian legislation that criminalizes environmental protest by introducing sanctions of up to 12 months jail time or $21,000 in fines and the impacts that this will have on environmental defenders fighting against native forest logging in the state. So for listeners that have been keeping up to date with these issues, um, basically, The bill ended up passing the Victorian Upper House last Thursday after our program, and uh, it's raised some really serious concerns about environmental justice action in Victoria and, of course, as we've discussed, uh, similar legislation being passed around the country. So a lot on today. A lot of uh, concerning stuff to be across, but also, uh, hopefully coming out of this, a bunch of uh, solid actions that people will be able to engage with to get involved and make some change. So you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Imagine what it would be like to be homeless in a city under curfew and in lockdown. When your everyday life has been turned upside down and it becomes illegal to be on the street. Tune in to Homeless in Hotels. A three-part radio series giving voice to the people who went from a life on the street to a life in hotels. And the support workers experiencing the shifting ground on the front line of COVID-19. Premiering on Thursday, July 28th, 12pm to 1pm. On 3CR, 855 AM. Homeless in Hotels, a 3CR supporter. Wah carries the stories of our ancestors, forever watching over us and protecting us. Join me, Taldem Chogo Edwards, for Balamwa, a journey of stories, yarns and music about freedom and survival from 2pm to 3pm every Thursday afternoon on 3CR, 855 on your radio dial. As I walk alone on my dreaming track tonight I can hear the voices of my elders Their ancient sounds echo in my mind To the beat of clapstick and the dancing These are the news headlines for Thursday the 11th of August. Listeners, please be advised these headlines contain mention of a First Nations person who has died. Advocates are calling for Victoria Police to establish an independent complaints process and a new oversight body to ensure First Nations people can have faith in grievance processes. Almost four months after the release of a scathing report from Victoria's Anti-Corruption Commission, Victoria Police have this week said it will overhaul how it deals with complaints lodged by First Nations people. But the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service says it wants to see detailed plans for how the police will achieve real change and implement the recommendations and would like to see opportunities for feedback from First Nations groups. The Anti-Corruption Commission made several findings in May this year, detailing conflicts of interest that were poorly managed, and a substantial number of complaints that contained indication of bias. 
Almost half of the complaints in the report related to assault or the use of force against First Nations people. In other news, the overwhelming demand for visas from Afghan nationals seeking protection in Australia has surged beyond 20,000 applications. Only 6,000 permanent humanitarian visas have been granted to Afghan nationals fleeing Afghanistan following the Taliban takeover last year. More than 30,000 humanitarian and family visas were promised by the former Morrison government, but half the applications are still waiting to even be considered, with applications from September last year yet to be reviewed. Human rights organisations continue to warn about abuses in Afghanistan with extrajudicial killings and harassment against human rights advocates and media workers, and particularly high risk for women. And finally in headlines for this week, with an additional warning that this headline contains mention of a First Nations person who has died. The Western Australian coroner has found that the death in custody of a young Miriwung and Gajarong man was preventable. 19-year-old Mr Yida died of a preventable cardiac arrest at Derby Regional Prison in 2018, and the Western Australian coroner has this week determined that multiple government agencies failed to take opportunities to save his life. Mr Yida was overdue to see a cardiologist for assessment related to rheumatic heart disease, but the referral from the prison medical officer did not progress to an appointment. Mr. Yida died six weeks before he was due to be released from prison. The coroner provided three recommendations from the inquiry related to better collaboration between the Department of Justice and Health Services, but failed to address the contribution systemic racism made to Mr. Yida's death. So we extend our solidarity to Mr. Yida's friends, family and community uh, who I'm sure are mourning and seeking justice. And this is once again an example of um, a failure to call out systemic racism in uh, in the carceral system and the way that this intersects with the health system in colonial Australia. So these have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 11th of August, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Hi, my name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm doing Black and Deadly on Fridays from 11 to 12 o'clock looking at all the best uh, black and deadly music, entertainers and performers around this country. Uh, Join me then from 11 to 12 Fridays, Community Radio, 3CR, 855 on the AM dial. We're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we're going into a little track to wake you up this morning. So this one is music by Jennifer Loveless for all of us nerds who can't actually get to a gig. Music makes it real. 
Good morning, and we are back on 3CR 855 AM. This is the Thursday morning breakfast program, and you were just listening to music by Jennifer Loveless, as I said before, for all of the nerds who don't make it out of the house, don't have time to go dancing. You can actually just listen to Jennifer Loveless on uh, on your little phone in your house and uh, have a little party. So we are going to go into our first segment for today, and this is a replay from this week's Do In Time show on 3CR, where Marissa caught up with Refugee Action Collective member David Glanz to ask, has anything changed with the election of the Albanese government in terms of refugee rights? Let's find out, folks. Now, David, if you wouldn't mind just talking about refugees and asylum seekers, I know we've got a new government in now, Anthony Albanese government, and there have been a few positives, but I'm wondering if you could just tell us what's been going on with the policies. Yeah, I think it's becoming increasingly obvious that the Albanese government is very good at making a small number of high-profile positive announcements and then covering up the very bad business as usual that's going on. So many people will know that uh, in the last few days, the Nagasalingam family, that's the Tamil family who made their home in Biloela and then were snatched from the house in the early hours of the morning and spent most of the last four years in detention, have finally been given permanent visas. And thousands of, thousands of people up and down the country celebrated because it was the activity of thousands of people protesting, plus the lawyers, who helped keep that family in Australia. There are many Tamil families who have been deported. This one wasn't deported because of the level of mobilisation. But the moment we stop and reflect, we've realised that for one family, there's hope and there's a future, but actually there are thousands and thousands of families in Australia and individuals um, who at the moment have no hope because they either have no visa at all or they are on a bridging visa that has to be renewed very often every six months or on a temporary visa that has to be renewed every one year or, or three years. So we're looking at tens of thousands of people who are living in limbo. Some of them can work, but they can't study. Some of them can uh, claim Centrelink and Medicare, but they can't work. And all of them are deprived of the confidence that they can live in this country in safety, security, and contribute to our society. So one big plus for the Nagasalingam family, home to below with safety and security, but tens of thousands of minuses hanging over the heads of people who are not in that situation. And that's something the Refugee Action Collective is campaigning to make sure that people don't forget and to put pressure on the Labor government to say if it's good enough for that lovely family and those two lovely little girls and their parents, it's yes. good enough for everybody else. So what's the problem here? I mean, the... the the Albanese government seems to be dragging its feet. Well, I think that on the plus side, Labor went into the election promising permanent visas for people who are yes. currently on what's known as temporary protection visas, or and there's another category, safe haven enterprise visas. Now, that's about 19,000 people, and they've been promised permanent visas. And that's great, except it hasn't happened yet. And every week that goes past, you think, what is holding up the government? This mm. is a very simple process. 
don't need to pass new laws, the immigration minister can pretty much single-handedly change the visa status of those people, or at least open up a process where they apply and go through go through the hoops, but knowing that the, they will end up with, with permanent visas. So it, it's been now, what, the best part of 10 weeks, and we're still waiting for the government to even indicate how they're going to go, go around that process. But what is even more worrying are the people on bridging visas, maybe 10,000, 20,000 people on bridging visas, which are very short-term, and as I say, give people very um, only a, a taste of some of the rights that the rest of us enjoy if we are citizens of, the, of, uh, of, of Australia. And for them, the government has promised precisely zero. And I think they are scared of being seen as being soft on, on refugees. There's still that, that hangover from over 20 years ago of the idea of the Q-jumper and the illegal. And Labor has sort of tried to push things a little bit in the direction of, of decency, but they're not going all the way unless we, as a movement, as people, give them a bloody big shove. So there's all sorts of people who they're not offering visas to, including those who cannot go to New Zealand under the New Zealand deal, cannot go to America, cannot go to Canada, and in many cases are still effectively trapped in Papua New Guinea or Nauru. There are hundreds of people in that situation. So we're out campaigning for the rights of all of these people to have permanent safe um, haven in, in Australia. Is it more difficult to advocate for refugees and asylum seekers with this government as compared to the coalition? Well, it, it, it shouldn't be. I mean, under the coalition, you look at Morrison, you look at Dutton, you look at Alex Hawke, really their contempt for all ordinary people, for all working class people, is just really obvious. It's, it's on their faces. They think all of us are scum. We're all trash. And, of course, refugees are the trashiest of the trash. They really hated refugees. They didn't want to give anybody visas if they could help it. It's different with Labour. Andrew Giles, who's the immigration minister, uh, acted on behalf of refugees during the Tampa crisis back in 2001. He's somebody who's spoken out for refugees and at refugee forums and refugee rallies. But he's a different kind of person altogether to the, the Morrisons and, and the Duttons. But he's still got his hands tied by party policy. And party policy is don't make it easy for the Murdoch media, media to have a go at us, um, saying that we're, we're soft on borders and, and soft on refugees. So we've got a guy who's basically a nice guy trapped in a situation where he can't do possibly what he wants to do because the party is operating on the basis of... Um, in, a, in their terms, safety first. And the refugees, they think the refugees don't carry a lot of weight and they can. It, it's not worth uh, giving them protection because uh, they won't get many thanks and they'll get lots of criticism. I think that's wrong. I think there is a majority of people around the country who think that refugees should be out of detention in the community with the right to permanent protection and, and safety. So I think the government is wrong. Um, so they're, they've got a, 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 a smiley face, but 
they are still supporting Operation Sovereign Border, which at the end of the day is about slamming the door shut in the face of desperate people. Uh, you've just heard a interview from Marissa, who caught up with Refugee Action Collective member David Glantz on this week's Do In Time show about asking, has anything changed with the election of the Albanese government in terms of refugee rights? And you can hear the full conversation on www.3cr.org.au forward slash do in time, D-O-I-N-T-I-M-E. <laughs> Get your free ticket to the upcoming Forum for Dwelling Justice, an activist-driven event featuring speakers including Senator Lydia Thorpe, Debbie Kilroy, Rouge Amity, Whit Gari, and more. The Forum brings together grassroots activists and campaign groups to strengthen solidarity movements resisting ongoing colonial dispossession, housing injustice, incarceration, and poverty. The forum ends with film screenings and a discussion between Uncle Larry Walsh, the filmmakers, and guests with lived experience of homelessness, displacement, squatting, and public housing. The event will run from 1 to 7 p.m. on Friday, the 26th of August, at the Capitol Theatre, 113 Swanson Street, Narm. Entry is by donation. Join us to identify the radical potential for resistance to dispossession and displacement in Narm. To register, head to cur.org.au forward slash events or check the 3CR website for details. The Forum for Dwelling Justice is brought to you by RMIT's Centre for Urban Research, a 3CR supporter. Fat Chat, a new show joining the 3CR Radical Radio Wednesday Hometime team at 6pm. Fat Chat will present the voices of self-advocates with cognitive disabilities. Voice at the Table, VAT, provides practical information to ensure people with cognitive disabilities have a real and equal voice at the table. Welcome, I'm Warren. I'm a graduate of the Voice at the Table training and presenter of the VAT Chat podcast. VAT Chat presents self-advocates in their own words and voice, showcasing how self-advocates are changing their world. Joining the 3CR Wednesday Hometime family from the 24th of August at 6pm and the 4th Wednesday of every month after that. 3CR, the voice of your community. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we're going to go to an interview now with Maddie Ha, who's an activist with Students for Palestine at RMIT University, and who's joining us today to remind listeners about the planned speak out today demanding that RMIT cut ties with Israeli weapons manufacturer Elbit Systems. Now, Maddie is also engaged in anti-racist activism with Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, or CARF, and is running as a candidate in Pasco Vale for the Victorian Socialists in the upcoming state election. Good morning, Maddie. Thanks so much for joining us today. Morning. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh, sorry, I can hear some feedback just a second. Um, oh, no, you're right. I think you might be able to hear that on your end, but we, we can hear you fine here. So as long oh, as it doesn't okay. bother you too much. <laughs> cool. Um, like a lot of uh, your listeners, I'm uh, on my commute to work. Um, so <laughs> that'll explain a bit of the background noise. But yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, no problem at all. Um, and yeah, thank you for making the time, you know, during a busy day. Um, 
So <laughs> your co-organizer, Ella, joined 3CR's Tuesday Breakfast Show this week to discuss some concerns about the recently announced partnership between the Victorian government, RMIT, and Elbit Systems. So could you start off by reminding listeners of the nature of this partnership? You know, what does it entail? And could you also speak to the extent of Elbit Systems' relationships with multiple levels of government in Australia as well? Yeah, so Elbit Systems is a cartoonishly evil weapons manufacturer. Um, the partnership is a two-year contract um, with RMIT and the weapons company. Um, the contract itself, it describes itself as being um, like an emergency services AI research thing. So it says... Um, its research will be used to look for um, victims in situations like bushfires. Um, but <laughs> we all know how defence companies mm-hmm. use this AI technology. Um, for example, like one of Albert Systems' uh, great, um, you know, research inventions is, you know, a helmet that uses AI technology. Um, so that um, uh, soldiers manning aircraft can simply, like, shoot a victim um, uh, from a plane by looking at the victim. Um, Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That sounds like incredibly dystopian sci-fi tech. And, of course, Mm. like, like, as we've seen, this is directly related to some of the horrific targeting of Palestinians by the Israeli military that we've seen across the past week. Um, So, look, I was also wondering if you could speak to some of the pushback against Elbit worldwide and and also some of the successes we've seen. So putting this in in an international context, because I've seen also there have been shutdowns of Elbit's London headquarters and arms factory in Oldham this year. Um, And I'm just wondering if we could think through what organizers here can learn from these actions and why uh, coordinated international solidarity with Palestine is so important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I realize I didn't um, answer an early question about the um, connections with the government, so I'll speak on that yeah, for, sure. for a second, because um, it's really interesting. Because um, uh, the, um, like the center for, like the Victorian government is um, assisting in um, setting up a research centre for this AI technology. So, yeah, it's like um, government-assisted. It's propped up as well um, by um, an arm of the government that deals with just, like, setting up um, investment um, in defence. and Christopher Pine is <laughs> deeply involved in Elbit Systems. He's, like, in his time as Defence Minister, he's helped secure up to 20 contracts um, for Elbit Systems um, worth up to, like, $98 billion, um, something like that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, and as soon as he's retired in government, he's has set up his own firm. I think it's called pine firms or something like that, um, basically just being a professional lobbyist for Elbit system um, in Australia. Uh, the old um, uh, 
Defense Minister to Defense Contractor Pipeline. Exactly, yeah. It's a revolving door. It's just horrific. Um, but yeah, on the international solidarity stuff, it's like, it, I think it's so important because I think it gives confidence to activists and supporters of Palestinian rights around the world. Um, you know, this example of students, activists, um, workers shutting down a factory in the UK, um, using direct action, um, protesting in front of uh, picketing the gates in front of the factory, um, spraying paint all over the factory, and just made it a nightmare for the factory to operate for the two years that it stood. Um, it was an 18-month-long campaign, mm. but they managed to shut it down. Um, and Albert Systems, of course, denies that <laughs> the protest had anything to do with it. But, you know, who opened the factory for only two years? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it does it does really speak to the fact that people organizing together and, you know, being really committed in this fight is such an important part of this as well, because this isn't the kind of action that happens overnight, you know, um, challenging uh, this military occupation and dehumanization and dispossession of Palestinians is is a fight that's been, you know, ongoing um, for decades and decades, and and acting in solidarity looks looks different uh, in a variety. It can happen in a variety of different ways. Um, and speaking of that, you know, I did mention before we've seen this horrific targeting of Palestinians in Gaza by the is- Israeli military over the last week, and um, the tragic um, killing of a lot of a lot of children as well. And it's just been, yeah, just really just appalling to, to, to see this and, and, and also to see the international community turning away or providing equivocal statements about, um, you know, about conflict, for example, um, when we're seeing civilians being targeted in this way. And, you know, the Israeli military is equipped by companies, including Elbit and other arms dealers like Lockheed Martin. Um, so could you speak to some of um, the concerns about Australian university partnerships with weapons manufacturers and why they have to be challenged from the inside as well as from the outside, so by students and staff members, um, as well as by other members of the community acting in solidarity. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's yeah, like it's just because our universities are built for profit. Um, our universities want to look for where the money is um, and. Unfortunately, in Australia, the defence industry um, is one of those big money industries. Um, I think Australia is the 10th largest um, weapons manufacturer the last time I've looked at it. Um, And, of course, like, companies want to, um, you know, use (laughs) uh, Australian talent, uh, you know, to cause destruction, um, around the world. Um, but it does give us actually um, an opportunity to show like our solidarity all the way um, across the world internationally with Palestinians, um, with all victims of war, um, that we can stop these partnerships, we can stop these weapons companies um, from getting into our universities and I think it starts with making the universities look bad. Um, 
you know, we think that all universities in Australia should be scared to be seen, to be associated with, you know, Albert systems that creates, like, white phosphorus um, bombs, um, you know, chemical weapons, um, just weapons of mass, like, like terror for Palestinians. Um, and so, you know, the fight is here um, as much as it's in... Palestine, um, and we have the power to change things, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, being very clear about saying, um, you know, as students and staff, you're, you, you have, you have a stake in the university, but you also have a stake in the, in the conditions of the world. And in, in terms of actually, uh, living your values by speaking out against this kind of thing and, and acting in solidarity, I think, yeah, um, getting people to be very clear about their, um, their commitment to Palestinian solidarity, I think is, is, is really important. Um, so can you tell listeners about the speak out that's happening today, what's happening and how can people get involved? And also, what are you hoping to achieve with this action? I know that might be a pretty obvious question. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we want to get rid of Albert systems at RMIT. Um, today we're having a speak out at 1 PM at Bowen Lane. Um, we're going to have, a students as well as a couple of staff um, speak out against the university, uh, make speeches against the vice-chancellor, um, and, yeah, like, hopefully put public pressure, um, yeah, on the university to cut ties. Yeah, excellent. And um, finally, where can folks find updates from your group, you know, information about this event? And also, uh, I believe there's a petition calling on the Australian and, Vict- and Victorian mm-hmm. government and RMIT University to end their partnerships with Albert. So where can people find that? Yeah, so um, you can follow RMIT Students for Palestine on Instagram, uh, where we'll be posting updates and information. Um, and you can sign a petition at... Um, Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions, BDS Australia. Um, They've posted on their blog um, uh, some information about RMIT's ties with Albert Systems as well as um, you can find the petition there as well. Excellent. Thank you so much, Maddie. I really appreciate you making the time and, um, yeah, encourage people to get involved, find out more information about the action, and we'll have that information in our show notes as well. Thank you so much, Priya. (laughs) All right. Take care. And that was Maddie Ha, an activist with Students for Palestine at RMIT University, who joins us today to remind listeners about the planned speak out today happening at Bowen Lane 1 p.m. at RMIT University, demanding that RMIT cut ties with Israeli weapons manufacturer Elbit Systems. And we will have more information about that in our show notes. Now, actually, I wanted to add on to that. just very relevant is that D- Disrupt Land Forces 2022 is having an info session at Black Spark Cultural Center this Saturday, the 13th of August at 2 p.m. So, um, if, for people that aren't familiar, Disrupt Land Forces uh, has been organizing a festival of resistance for several years in a row uh, in solidarity with people who are affected by war. And this is, you know, First Nations uh, solidarity. Uh, 
linking up people resisting militarism in West Papua, the Philippines, and so-called Australia. So they're asking people to come hang out with them for an afternoon of cozy chats and inspiring stories of anti-militarist resistance in the charming surrounds of Black Spark Cultural Center in Northcote to discover, suggest, and develop ideas together for the peace action of the year. So there's uh, also a crafting tactics session on Sunday, the 14th of August from 12 to 5 p.m. Also at Black Spark. So those are two events, Saturday, the 13th of August at 2 p.m. and Sunday, the 14th of August from 12 to 5 p.m. Black Spark for Disrupt Land Forces, which you can also find on Instagram and I believe on Twitter as well. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 a.m. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. Imagine what it would be like to be homeless in a city under curfew and in lockdown. When your everyday life has been turned upside down and it becomes illegal to be on the street. Tune in to Homeless in Hotels. A three-part radio series giving voice to the people who went from a life on the street to a life in hotels. And the support workers experiencing the shifting ground on the front line of COVID-19. Premiering on Thursday, July 28th, 12pm to 1pm. On 3CR, 855 AM. Homeless in Hotels, a 3CR supporter. And now we will be going to a song called Heaven With You by Tasman Keith featuring Jessica Malboy.
As the mountains run high, as the soul that I owe is for you and I. When the singers don't sing and the choirs run shy, I search without envy and live without pride. I felt all the scars, I ran with the rain, I bathed in the sun, I held up for days, I lost all my hope to find it again. I know you see balance and peace in the pain. just heard Heaven With You by Tasman Keith featuring Jessica Mowboy. Have you heard it on the news About this fascist growth thing Evil men with racist views Spreading all across the land They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. It is 7.49 and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And now we'll be going to another song, which is Thelma Plum's latest single, Backseat of My Mind. Doesn't matter how long it takes, but I know I'll get there soon. I've been looking the wrong way at the other side of the moon. It's not easy to leave it. But I know where I'm going I could hold the wheel forever If I knew you'd be there too
And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. That was Backseat of My Mind by Thelma Plum off her new album, Minjin. And oh, so exciting, so beautiful. Um, love Thelma Plum's music. So excited for a new tour. And um, you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And now, Leela, take it away. Yes, so I'm very excited now to be talking to Madeline Thornton-Smith, who has a strong interest in labour issues, particularly in relation to the visual arts and ceramics industry. She has become passionate about the working rights of artists and art workers since doing an internship with the Victorian Trades Hall Council and the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, participating in discussions with the Melbourne-based Artists' Union Research Group and after experiencing years of insecure and unsafe working conditions as a practising artist, technician and tutor alongside her art worker comrades. Today, Madeline joins us to discuss her work on art and labour, the renewed national cultural policy and unionising in the creative sector. Hi, Madeline. How are you going? Thanks. Welcome. So I wanted to start by asking why you got involved with art and labour issues. I understand that your personal experience in the arts prompted your decision to undertake an internship with the Trades Hall uh, council, sorry, Victorian Trades Hall Council. Yeah. Could you tell us a bit more about your time as an artist and worker and what insights you gained from your internship? Um, I suppose it started off. Um, oh, sorry, I can hear myself speaking back. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. We've had that issue a bit. It's quite distracting, but we can actually yeah. hear you perfectly from the okay, studio. Good. Yeah. All right, all right, all good. Um, yeah, I started off, uh, essentially I was in a job in council, um, working in a local council, and I have studied art and everything, and I was really excited to get a job um, teaching either visual arts or ceramics. Um, and I'd had in the past just traditional jobs, um, you know, on the payroll as a casual in other industries. Um uh, yeah, I like went for my interview and everything, and I got the job. Um, and then I was asked to get an ABN, um, which I thought was a really strange thing, as I thought I was going for a job. Um, and then I was asked to mm-hmm. get um, public liability insurance. Um, but then, yeah, I was like, well, this is your pay rate. Um, I think in accounts I was getting super, but there was a bit of a catch-22 in that, I was earning less than $450 um, mm. in the pay period, so I usually didn't get super anyway. Um, anyway, so I found out sort of through a bit of research that that was a phenomenon called sham contracting, and it's really common in the visual arts. Um, yeah, so basically it's a way that employers, like, they think they can get away with paying no super. Technically, even contractors might get super. And also, like, not paying kind of recommended pay rates and, and so on. Um, yeah, and anyway, that radicalised me. And then I went and did an internship um, through Trades Hall um, and learnt a little bit more about organising and awards and EBAs and, and workers' rights generally. Um, and also I started, uh, yeah, talking with this working group called the Artists' Union, um, who are other, yeah, other arts workers and people interested in these issues. And we're not officially a union, but we're more of a discussion group on these issues. 
Mm, it's great to hear that that's happening. Um, really, I only recently recognised the impact that the lack of union representation has for, you know, the everyday artist and arts worker. And initially, I thought NAVA, or the National Association for the Visual Arts, was an adequate alternative for a union. But there are some crucial differences. Namely, unions have the power to represent employees during workplace disputes, as well as the power to negotiate or bargain with employers. NAVA does some great work in providing guidelines, but cannot provide the grassroots advocacy that a union might. Do you think a union would benefit artists and art workers? And what impact could unionisation have on the everyday artist or art worker? Yeah, I've been thinking about this issue a lot um, and having a bit to do with NAVA because they do have a really great code of conduct and in the code of conduct they have um, what theoretically both artists and art workers should be paid. So this includes if you're an artist having a group or a solo exhibition, like the artist fee you should be paid. Um, and also I do believe they have like teaching rates in there, though I don't know if they're um, specific to industries. For instance, I'm in ceramics. Um, but yeah, they're sort of, they do a lot of advocacy, as do a lot of the associations, but they also stand for the sector generally, which means they often represent the galleries or the employers as well. So whereas unions represent kind of the worker at the bottom. So I know from um, being in a union for my council job, I have felt much more confident in asking for better conditions, asking um, for better safety, um, for better pay. You sort of feel like you... It's like insurance, like you have kind of protection, um, and you can come together if there's other people in the union, you can come together to ask for, yeah, ask for improvements. Um, yeah, I definitely think the problem is that um, we have all sorts of unions that can cover patches of the visual arts. So, like, the Australian Services Union can help you if you're, a, say, a council worker um, working in council gallery or community centre. It's like the CPSU if you're at um, the NGV, NTEU, which is the tertiary union, if you're, say, a university worker, and so on. Um, I think the Independent Education Union I talked to um, when I recently wrote an article on sham contracting, and they said um, that they would ha cover people in private studios, but a lot of people don't know that. But, yeah, there's still all these gaps. So I think mm. um, just the impact it would have is... It, we all have these concerns as, as artists and artworkers. because we could all come together. Like, unionisation is about coming together to demand better. Um, and there are new unions that have formed. Like, I just went to a conference in RAFWI, which is the new retail union that is not officially endorsed by the Australian Council um, of Trade Unions. They've just formed. They've just been, like, the SDA, which is the... Um, the alternate retail union, they're like, they're not doing enough. They're representing more the interests of employers rather than workers. Let's just form a new union. So, yeah. like, it is possible. That <laughs> is definitely what I'm hoping for. And when I was preparing for this interview, I was reflecting on how I would need to be a member of at least three different unions, and then I still wouldn't be covered with the, yeah. all the different jobs that I'm currently employed under just to support myself as an artist. So, yeah, yeah. We've, we really need to unite, I think, and have something yeah. that 
covers us a bit more adequately. Um, Mm -hmm. In 2013, the National Cultural Policy, Creative Australia, was launched by the Gillard government in an effort to support the cultural and creative sectors. The five pillars or goals that informed the previous policy will remain as the building blocks for the renewed 2022 iteration. These five pillars include recognising and respecting the crucial place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander stories at the centre of arts and culture, ensuring that government support reflects the diversity of Australia, supporting the artist as worker and celebrating their role as the creators of culture, providing support across the spectrum of institutions which sustain our arts and culture, and ensuring our stories reach the right people at home and abroad. So this new national cultural policy is currently in its consultation phase and is open for submission by artists, arts workers, creative organisations, government bodies and anyone involved in the art, culture and entertainment sector. Could you discuss your recent contribution to the Artistic Courage Symposium and just speak to the importance of speaking out on these issues as an artist? Yeah, so um, I recently prepared a talk for this um, symposium that was run, um, I think it was jointly by NAVA and RMIT. Um, I specifically talked about yeah, some of the things I've been talking about today, I guess, like artist organising, like the possibility of us organising together um, and trade unions. And I went through, like, yeah, all the trade unions where there's some coverage but not all. Um, and I also talked about the issue of class in the arts and how that excludes um, working class people or or people from migrant backgrounds or, um, or people with disability and so on. Um, yeah, and, and it doesn't help that already art can be quite an elitist kind of um, area of work, and then and then it just excludes people who are too poor to do it, too poor to do heaps of volunteer work, basically for these um, top notch institutions. Um, and yeah, I also talked about how at the moment, a lot of the millennial and Gen Z. Um, generations generally there's this new insecure worker class um, and Mm. it kind of doesn't necessarily matter whether you're tertiary educated or not like I I have like almost a decade of tertiary education but I still um, have to access like occasionally on welfare and stuff because I just don't don't get enough income from from being an artist Um, and yeah there's a term for that's called the precariat so it's like this precarious Mm. class um, yeah, and I also talked a little bit, like, what we were talking about before, like, associations and how um, they're really great and they definitely perform a function and I don't want associations such as NAVA or the Australian Ceramics Association or whichever it is to not exist, but I think they could potentially work with unions or with a new union or an existing union um, to just help artists right at the bottom who are just whether it be in teaching or whether it be as artists, they're just being ripped off. Mm. um, Yeah. yeah. I think it's really important to centralise class when we're having these discussions because, yeah, as I was discussing earlier today, there seems to be a big disparity of, like, you know, people who are just really struggling and then some people who can afford to do art just because they 
uh, may have inherited generational wealth or are mm. quite comfortable financially. So, yeah, we really need to think about both sides of those spectrums. Um, yeah. And I was reading somewhere as well that uh, there's approximately seven over 700,000 hours of volunteer work uh, in the arts industry every year. And really, mm. it would fall apart without that unpaid labour. So, yeah. yeah, we really need to work on, you know, getting each other paid and especially for those who may not have the same privilege as some others. Yeah, um, and there's um, definitely also kind of this, like, gratitude pay, you know, like um, the cultural capital, if I can put this on my CV, and I'm just gracious yeah. for even this voluntary position, like, and that can be quite toxic. Yeah. The term yeah. Um, precariats made me see, made me feel very seen, so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my last question today is, what do you think it would take to unionise in the arts and do you have any words of support for those artists and art workers out there who are really struggling to advocate for themselves at the moment and are just kind of a bit tired, maybe mm. a bit broke and feeling yeah. a bit demoralised at the moment? Um, well, something, yeah, I forgot to address in the last question was um, the government has um, a call out for the national cultural policy at the moment. And one of those pillars that you mentioned is the centrality of the artist and the artist's worker. And even putting that into words is quite important. And obviously we all know like Labor has this history and association with unions. So um, probably like the first thing I would do is expressing how perhaps artists need for them to be recognised as workers, they need um, maybe like an award, like Narva's as well, talking about needing an award. But if there is an award, do we need a union to kind of help enforce that? Um, also, like telling Narva themselves, like I think they may have a um, survey at the moment too, but otherwise just contacting them and just telling them um, perhaps would a union help me? Um yeah, seeing, I, I know, like, through, like, being in the Australian Ceramics Association, they're also, like, another, they're not a union, but they've been quite supportive in um, helping me write about how we need a union. Mm, <laughs> um, so if, you ha if you're an artist, like, seeing what your peak body association is and expressing to them what, as a worker, what you think um, they need is also what you need. Um, Trades Hall in Victoria also have... Um, several outreach centres like the Young Workers Centre, the Women's Centre, the Migrant Workers Centre, and they all provide free legal advice um, for workers um, who don't, say if you don't have a union that covers you. Um, yeah, and I suppose just like trying to reach out in your industry, like for me through like speaking out about this, um, I've found other like-minded people and for a long time it felt like it was just me. But then, you know, mm. in the last two weeks I've been to two conferences where we're all talking about how we need a union. Um, I guess it's like you sort of learn in organising this, like, anger, hope, action and, like, I often think of myself getting stuck in the anger phase and I think all of us are stuck in the anger phase but we need hope that there, that we can come together to change things and then we need to actually act on it. So, um, 
Yeah, and there are other unions, like one of the conferences, um, Musicians Australia, which is powered by um, the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance. They're just like a small union to help um, gigging music- musicians. Um, they said how they did it. Game Workers Union, that's a new union. They're powered by Professionals Australia. And then there's RAFWU. So also potentially reaching out to existing unions and telling them. But, yeah, I guess I've got to, I don't have an answer for that question because I am still working out um, the best way to yeah. <laughs> address this problem with the lack of our unionisation. But I think just, yeah, raising the issues, directly telling the government, um, the current government, unlike the last one, is actually listening. Doesn't mean that, you know, they'll fix the problem, but at least they're listening. yeah. So, That's right. Um, And I think initially I didn't even have the language to talk about what I was experiencing in the arts industry. So, you know, having hope and motivation and, um, mm. you know, to learn more about these issues and how to advocate for ourselves is really important, I think, when we're trying to, um, you know, maybe get an award rate. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The, the demands are not particularly high at the moment, but... No, we just want some, <laughs> like, absolute minimum standards. Um, and, I mean, if people are, like, really into this, like I was, like, that, I highly recommend um, Trade Poll do this Union Summer and Union Winter program, um, which is about organising. Um, yeah. And, and it's paid as well, so... Oh, that's great. Yeah, we will have yeah. the links to all of those in the show notes, Uh, Thank you so much for contributing your time and labour today. And I hope you have a wonderful morning. Okay, thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. And we just heard from Madeline Thornton-Smith, who has a strong interest in labor issues, particularly in relation to the visual arts and ceramics industry, and who joined us uh, to discuss her work on art and labor and the renewed national cultural policy and unionizing in the creative sector. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, worker stories and union news. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. Every Wednesday at 11am, join me, Bunzolini, at the fire on Community Radio 3CR. Three hours of historically informed, critical analysis of Aboriginal affairs and the ongoing political movement for land rights, treaty, sovereignty 
and the cessation of genocide. Featuring the best of black music. Bundles Fire, 11am to 2pm, every Wednesday on Community Radio 3CR. back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we're now joined by Chris Scheringer, who's a campaigner with the Victorian Forest Alliance and is joining us to discuss concerns about recently passed Victorian legislation criminalizing environmental protest by introducing sanctions of up to 12 months jail time or $21,000 in fines and the impacts that this will have on environmental defenders fighting against native forest logging in the state. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, any time. Um, so just to kick it off, the Sustainable Forest Timber Amendment, Timber Harvesting Safety Zones Bill 2022 passed the Victorian Upper House last Thursday, the 5th of August, despite widespread concern and resistance from the community and a range of human rights, legal, environment and climate organizations. So maybe we can start off by going through some of these key issues raised by individuals and groups who have been pushing back against the bill since it was introduced earlier in the year. Yeah, I think the key worry that people have. Sorry, the <laughs> the the sound is just a bit distracting. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine, that's fine. Um, yeah, the key issue really is that this is attacking community members and people trying to take action at a time when forests need to be protected and in a climate climate emergency and an ecological crisis. The heavy-handed fines and jail time is is a concerning aspect, but also increased powers for authorised officers to stop and search people, confiscate belongings, um, so they could do things like search people's car, uh, based on suspicion, not based on actually uh, when you're actually committing an offence. Mm. And so it's very premature uh, that authorised officers can just search people at will. And also really uh, concerning is banning notices that could be issued to people, which means that uh, citizen scientists or people who are in the forest regularly doing really critical work, holding the government accountable uh, and keeping an eye on the dodgy logging that's happening uh, could be banned from from being in areas, and we don't know how those powers will be used, how long people will be banned for, and the breadth of, of the area that they might be banned from. Uh, it's very, very concerning. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's so much scope for arbitrary decision-making sort of at the discretion of, you know, whichever whichever officer is, is currently implementing uh, this this act. And so um, it does raise a whole lot of concerns. And, you know, we've seen, of course, with the, the crackdown on Blockade Australia in New South Wales, there's just this sort of nexus around the country now of legislation that's starting to really clamp down on climate justice activism. So I understand that Victorian Forest Alliance does include a number of different groups who've been involved in peaceful, sustained frontline environmental defense actions. And um, for people that aren't really familiar with what that kind of work entails, can you speak to the kind of impacts the bill, uh, sorry, the act now is going to have on forest protectors on the ground when it comes to the actual everyday labor of this kind of work? Yeah, I mean, personally, for myself, I have in the past been involved with um, with frontline forest direct action, uh, which has resulted in areas uh, that have now 
not been permanently protected, but certainly held off for longing enough that, that some areas have been taken off taken off schedules. There was a, a four-month blockade out in East Gippsland to defend Aran- a forest in Erinundra, really, really critical unburnt refuge uh, in, in a sea of fire-impacted forest. Um, and it could have meant that... And, and I've been have been arrested and multiple times doing forest actions and already the penalties are pretty harsh. You, you're up for thousands of dollars worth of fines, but jail time um, and tw- or $21,000 fines for people taking action. Um, yeah, it's really, it's really frightening. And, but I, don't, I also don't think that it's going to deter people because what we know is, is that you know, people... And communities are so connected to these to these areas, and they don't want the logging to go ahead. And they'll do anything that they can to to stop to stop areas from being logged. And people will say, you know, oh, this is extreme action. It's not extreme. It's so critical now, given how much has been lost, how much has been impacted, and the fact that the state government is targeting community members, targeting peaceful protesters, targeting people like this, rather than doing what they should be doing, which is winding up native forest logging now, not in 2030, because uh, that's what people, that's that's what the Victorian public wants, that's what we expect. So it doesn't make any sense to be targeting people and trying to wedge um, wedge environmentalists and workers and, and play them off against each other. And, and we've seen that that has backfired terribly for the government in this situation. Yeah, definitely. And I mean... Um, you did kind of touch on this just before, but to put things further in perspective for our listeners, I was wondering um, if you could tell us about the sort of scale of environmental degradation and native forest logging that we have seen in Victoria over the last few decades and the impact that this has had on local ecosystems and wildlife such as the southern greater glider. So what what is it that we've already lost? Yeah, it's pretty it, it, it's pretty alarming. I mean, there's there's hardly an area that you could go to in Victoria, an area of forest that hasn't been impacted by by native forest logging, and and it, it, it's it, it's just the scar that it has on the landscape and what it has done to wildlife, uh, making areas more prone to bushfires, our waterways and our water security. Um, it's really, really devastating, and that's why it's so critical that it ends now. And particularly, you know, with the impacts of climate change, we know that forests are critical for mitigating climate change. There are carbon stores, uh, and also devastating bushfires, protecting communities. Yeah, I um, am very close to to the community and people in in Goongra, which were really horribly impacted by the fires, and saw, you know saw what was happening what was happening there and people know that that the logging in that area intensely logged around the town and and the connections that logging has with that with that bushfire and increased bushfire severity and, and, and drying out areas and so it has a huge impact on the landscape, terrible impact on threatened species like the Greater Glider, which has seen declines of eighty percent in the last thirty years. This is a species that was once common in Victoria's native forests are now um, dwindling and seeing local extinctions across the state. Really frightening. Yeah, so that's why these that's why these forest defenders and people who are out there, citizens looking for wildlife. That's that's why now it's so important. They're they're, they're so important. 
Yeah. And I mean, um, as you said, like for people that are actually seeing the scale of the destruction and what we also stand to to lose if people stop engaging in environmental defense, you know, clearly people are motivated by a greater goal than, um, you know, than just uh, fighting against the Victorian state government. This is about protecting protecting the environment and, and maintaining you know, what, we, what we do have left and trying to uh, engage in, in, you know, regrowth initiatives and that kind of thing as well. And I'm also wondering if we could pivot a little to discuss climate concerns at the federal level, because the Victorian Forest Alliance published an urgent to-do list for the Minister for the Environment and Water, Tanya Plibersek, in mid-July. And I just wanted to check in with how the Albanese government is tracking on some of those goals that you set so far. Yeah, it's interesting. As as you know, with a new government, it's like it certainly presents an opportunity, and um, and you can get kind of excited that oh, maybe you know some things are going to be um, changed. But uh, so far, we haven't really seen uh, the Albanese government step in to take action, and and they can take action to address the extinction crisis, to address native forest logging. Uh, the State of Environment report, which was recently released, um, painted a really bleak picture of the state of threatened species and ecosystems, which we know are just in massive decline. We know that logging is is impacting that and fueling that. Uh, and Tanya Plibersek certainly has, you know, it's it's great that she is listing species um, like the Greater Collider was listed as endangered and recognising the decline of species, but we can't just be listing species and not mm-hmm. taking action. There is a clear path of, of action which, which Tanya can take, and that's by abolishing these really dodgy agreements between the federal government and the Victorian state government, which give logging an exemption from national environment laws. Yeah. It, so those agreements have been in, in place for yes, 30, over 30 years. Uh, we know that they're devastating and they've had a devastating impact on certain species. Get rid of the agreements um, and and take urgent action to protect forests, to to tackle climate change. It must be part of part of the federal government plan to tackle climate change. Yeah, a hundred percent. And the last thing you want is to end up with a nice comprehensive list and no animals left. Um, right. Yeah. And so just to just before we wrap up, you know, I've got no doubt that the climate justice fight is going to continue. And I was hoping that you could just briefly touch on the importance of cross coalition solidarity on these issues, including that letter against the anti-protest bill that was put up by a group of unions and um, also let us know where people can support your work. Yeah, it's the the importance of solidarity is it's so important. Um it's, uh, Tafi Moitzer from Goonga Environment Centre worked really hard with with, um, with the MUA, uh, the United Workers Union, and the ASU to um, on yeah on on those on that letter. Um, and she said it said it brilliantly. Just like solidarity is what's going to win this fight. Um, solidarity between um, between the environment movement, between union, between First Nations leaders and 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 First Nations activists, uh, solidarity within the climate movement and the environment movement as well. It's just it's so important. And and even and even us as an alliance of forest groups um, that that forest groups across the state are all working together um, to to win this. And 
Um, and I'm sure after, after the last few weeks, the Daniel Andrews government should be very worried. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, people can support um, by, yeah, just getting in touch with us, visiting our website, victorianforestalliance.org.au. We're ramping up in the lead-up to the, to the November state election, and voters will remember um, that the 10 entries passed this really harsh, harsh legislation, and we're going to keep mobilising and keep working to for it to be withdrawn and so that our native forest can be protected. Yeah, no Good. doubt. And... Um, <laughs> We will absolutely have links to the Victorian Forest Alliance in our show notes um, so that people can get involved, find out more. And look, Chris, thank you so much for uh, sharing some of your experiences and wisdom about this with us today. And I think uh, solidarity is definitely the message that we need to come back to. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Take care. And that was Chris Schuringa, campaigner with the Victorian Forest Alliance, who joined us to discuss concerns about that recently passed Victorian legislation that criminalizes environmental protest in the state. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we might jump into our rundown for what we covered today. So, Inez, do you want to take it away? Yes, yeah, so first we had a replay uh, from the Doing Time show and Marissa caught up with Refugee Action Collective member, member David Glantz uh, to talk about has anything changed with the election of the Albanese government in terms of refugee rights? Surprise, no. Yes, uh, so surprising. Um, afterwards, we heard from Maddie Ha, an activist with Students for Palestine at RMIT University, who joined us to remind listeners about the planned Speak Out Today at RMIT Bowen Street at 1 p.m., demanding that RMIT cut ties with Israeli weapons manufacturer Albert Systems. And then we heard from Madeline Thornton, Thornton-Smith, who became passionate about the working rights of artists, and art workers since doing an internship with the Victorian Trades Hall Council and the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, participating in discussions with the Melbourne-based Artist Union Research Group and after experiencing years of insecure and unsafe working conditions as a practising artist, technician and tutor along her, alongside her art worker comrades. Today, Madeline joined us to discuss her work on art and labour, the renewed national cultural policy and unionising in the creative sector. Yeah, such an important discussion. I'm really glad we were able to bring that to air. So thanks, Leela. Um, and finally, we were joined by Chris Sharinga, who's a campaigner with the Victorian Forest Alliance, to discuss concerns about the recently passed Victorian legislation, which criminalizes environmental protest by introducing sanctions of up to 12 months jail time or $21,000 in fines, and the impacts that this will have on environmental defenders fighting against native forest logging in the state. That's about all we've got time for today on Thursday morning breakfast. Um, anything else uh, we want to drop before before we wrap up? Mm, I'm still thinking about Beanie. Yeah, oh Beanie. Uh, if you didn't uh, if you didn't catch the start of the show, Beanie, Beanie the Chow Chow that we saw. If you're around Fitzroy, uh, Beanie is also around. So uh, keep an eye out for a little fluffy black dog who may or may not have a blue tongue. I forgot. Now I'm like now I'm feeling a bit nervous about having said that earlier. Um, do chow chows have flu tongues? Right in to the, sto- uh, to, to the show. Uh, call 94198377 and let us know. Leave a message for Thursday morning breakfast. Anyway, we will catch you next week. Um, and after this, we're going to head to Lost in Science. So thanks so much, uh, Inez and Leela. I hope you have a wonderful day. You too. And the listeners. Yes, and the listeners. <laughs> listeners, have a beautiful day.